Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 118, Ginny Locanita, The Truth Machines. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Ginny Lokanita. Ginny is professor and chair of political science and professor of international relations at Drew University, where her research focuses on law and violence, political theory, transnational law, and cultural studies. Our podcast today features Ginny's new book, The Truth Machines, Policing, Violence, and Scientific Interrogations in India. It was published in 2020 by the University of Michigan Press. In it, Ginny chronicles the rise of various truth-seeking technologies in India in recent years. Attempting to stop the police's use of physical torture to extract information and confessions, reformers turned to lie detectors, brain scans, and even truth serums as a way to modernize the interrogation process. This attempted shift away from physical torture was, of course, laudable, but as we know, these truth machines, as Ginny labels them, These truth machines have their own deep problems in terms of reliability and legitimacy. My conversation with Ginny looks at just what happened in India and how those reform efforts seemingly went so awry. Ginny, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much. To get us started, I suspect that many of our listeners, like myself, are largely unfamiliar with how the Indian criminal justice system works and the problems that it faces with police torture during interrogations. So perhaps you could just set the broader context before we get into some of the deeper questions in the book. Sure. So let me start by just saying that police torture in India actually occurs in many different sites. So even though my own focus is often on police torture in the context of interrogations, which means that basically it can happen in the context of very ordinary criminal cases. So somebody can be picked up uh, for theft or in the context of some dispute and can end up in custody and sometimes are the subject of a custodial death. So that's one context. The other contexts are also in conflict areas or so-called conflict areas like Kashmir or Northeast or Central India, where there are extraordinary laws that uh, bypass routine safeguards. And there too, because detention is easier, there are possibilities of torture much more. And then finally, there are also terrorism-related cases, which also enable torture easily, partly because they can be, again, detained and kept in other places where there's less focus 
on what is going on. So I think it's important for us to know that in India, post, particularly, and here I'm talking about the post-colonial context, that torture actually occurs in all these different sites, routine contexts, extraordinary laws, related contexts, and in conflict areas. I understand from what you're saying that it's geographically widespread. Is it frequent or is it only in isolated incidences? It's absolutely normalized, I would say. So I think if we look at, uh, and here I'll give you two kinds of uh, examples. One, if you look at the National Human Rights Commission reports, which has existed since the late 90s, And that's sort of the statutory body that the Indian government has to monitor human rights violations. And you will see that even those reports over the years actually show that torture is extremely frequent. It is routinely used. It ranges from, you know, beatings to use of electric shock to basically a number of different psychological and physical torture methods. And so I would say that it is extremely frequent. And we see that also in the fact that there are custodial deaths each year, which are recorded by the National Human Rights Commission and National Crimes Bureau reports as well, which only indicate that since we don't have evidence or very good data on torture per se, the custodial deaths become evidence of how normalized torture is. The other, I'll just say that with my co-author, Dr. Amar Jaisani, we did a study from 1980s to 2014, and where we looked at all the reports and did interviews with NHRC and police and other officials. And there too, it was very clear that it was both the severity and the frequency of torture had not changed despite all the monitoring mechanisms and strong jurisprudence that India uh, actually has. Yeah, and so I just wanted to emphasize this. So the torture problem persists despite effectively decades of it being not only deemed unconstitutional, but illegal by the existing law. Absolutely. I think it's important to note that it's true that India doesn't have a specific anti-torture law that has been an issue, partly because it's linked to the fact that India, uh, while has signed the UN Convention Against Torture, has not actually ratified it. And basically, there's been a demand to have a specific anti-torture legislation. But even in the absence of that, there are enough statutory as well as constitutional safeguards, especially Article 21 of the Indian Constitution, which emphasizes life and liberty and uh, protection against torture very clearly through the Indian court's uh, efforts as well. So there's this very famous case called DK Basu, which really emphasized In the 90s, so I'm talking about 96, 97, where torture was explicitly addressed and safeguards created and therefore torture is illegal and unacceptable in the Indian legal context. And yet we see its persistence through the decades. So I'd like to turn to the primary topic of your book, which is what you label truth machines. And 
I think to most of us in the US, truth machines means polygraphs and perhaps other lie detection methods like fMRI or maybe something to do with EEGs. But the category of truth machines in your book is much broader than that. So tell us a little bit about what truth machines have been introduced to the Indian criminal justice system. I would say that truth machines is a term that are used to identify polygraphs, brain scans, but also truth serums or narcoanalysis, which is the use of sodium pentothal in order to get information or confessions. And lie detectors were actually introduced in the Indian context also very early, sometime in the 60s, 70s. But really, it's the 90s and 2000s that we see the emergence of these three techniques coming together. Basically, uh, if you look at uh, a lot of the more sensational cases, whether it was related to murders or terrorism-related cases or militancy-related cases, suddenly you saw an increase or a visibility of using these three particular techniques. The reason why I think I end up sort of emphasizing these techniques as truth machines is because there was a claim made by both the police as well as the forensic psychologists and ultimately by many state high courts that uh, basically these truth machines will help replace physical torture because they were seen as coming in the form of science and modernization and involved certain medical professionals which would ensure that interrogations could take place, but in a different site and with a different set of actors. And how are these methods applied? So as I understand, originally, these were permissible even without the suspect's consent. So the suspect could be forced to endure some of these methods. And then later that changed. Absolutely. I think that was one of the most shocking things that, in fact, led to the human rights movement uh, really challenging these techniques. Because, you know, as I said, it started from, let's say, the late 90s till about, it was only in 2010 that the Supreme Court uh, stepped in and said that consent had to be ensured. But in this entire period, and this is really the period when these techniques took over both the legal, scientific, as well as popular imagination, and you would see videos of narcoanalysis of suspects in very sensational cases being leaked to the media and a, a media trial occurring as a result. And then basically, whenever somebody would challenge these in the state high courts, which are really the highest courts in the states or the provinces, you find that basically the high courts would say that what is the problem in this? Basically, it's just an extension of investigation. It is just an extension of using modern science and technology. And you even have medical professionals who are going to be there to make sure that a person is not scarred. And in that context, it almost made the human rights scholars and activists who are challenging these efforts as a problem because they were not recognizing how revolutionary or how transformative these uh, truth machines were, even though we know that narcoanalysis in particular is extremely invasive and can have very 
disastrous effects on people and basically is invasive. And as Dr. Amajasani has said, it's almost like a pharmacological torture. So when you think about that, it was very clear that the fact that they were doing it without consent was not just ethically problematic, but also was a violation of the self-incrimination clause that the Indian constitution also has. So I think in some ways, it was clear that there was uh, an acceptance of this paradigm that the police and the forensic psychologists were putting forward that these techniques should be embraced. And for me, it also reflects a general tendency of uncritically adopting certain methods in the name of science and modernization without actually thinking about the legal ethical and other concerns. And I just want to make clear to our audience, narcoanalysis may be something that is unfamiliar to most people, but it's actually injecting the drug into the suspect and then interrogating them in the altered state that the person is in, right? So it's a semi-conscious state, which is hoped to generate truth out of the statements that the person makes. Yes, I think you're absolutely right that basically it's method that was actually introduced and made popularized in the US in the 1930s by Dr. House. And the idea was basically that there are different stages where once you inject a drug into the suspect, there's a state which is called sort of a twilight state of consciousness where your ability to lie is taken away, right? And so as a result, you just without thinking, you'll speak the truth. And this was experimented on prisoners and so on and so forth for a while in the US. And then there's a story of how it goes on in the context of the CIA experiments during the Cold War and was even actually for a little bit thought about in the post 9-11 context until it was rejected. But in the Indian context, what has been very interesting is that when I went and interviewed forensic psychologists, they would actually often say that, no, no, in the post 9-11 US context, actually it was used and uh, using that as a way to generate support in the Indian context. And I would say that what has been striking is that not only was it embraced uncritically during the 1990s, 2000s, and there was this huge plan of expanding it. There were all these plans of putting in all the energies into creating narcoanalysis labs and mobile vans and so on. But even after the Supreme Court pushed back against these techniques in some forms, it basically said it can't be used by consent. Without consent, the evidence is not admissible, but allowed these techniques to remain and in fact, there's an exception that is there in Indian law, which allows for some kind of evidence to be indirectly used in a case. And the same remains for narcoanalysis and other techniques, even today, which is why you see that they remain at the realm of investigation. So I think it's really important for us to recognize that even though with the Supreme Court's intervention, there was the euphoria sort of went down, I would say. But what has been remarkable is that you actually find that in the last one year, 
we've had two high courts, uh, the state high courts basically demanding their states to set up narco facilities. And the Delhi government has set up a narco facility in the last one year in the pandemic, almost as if that's one of the priorities. And there's just been another case where another state high court has uncritically asked for narco reports to be shared in the court. And the reason why I emphasize this is just to reassert the fact that it's not just about these techniques, although these techniques are shocking and India may be one of the only countries in the world that is currently still allowing for narcoanalysis in its criminal investigations. But more importantly, it suggests that there's an overemphasis on confessions. There's an overemphasis on asking this body to betray itself orally through any means possible. And that really is the larger point that I'm also trying to make. That's a question that ran through my mind as I was reading your book, that it seems like all of these efforts, torture, the truth machines, even things that we accept in the U.S. where you don't have the machines or the torture, they seem all directed at the same thing, which is confession. So what is it about confession that seems to capture the imagination, not only in this particular context in India, but in so many societies? I think that's a really important question. I will also say that given that my work has also been sort of of a comparative framework. And I recently just taught uh, Lawrence Ralph's book, Torture Letters. So I will say that the discussion on torture in the context of the US and in the context of Guantanamo Abu Ghraib is more complex, but that's for another day. I just want to emphasize that I think a lot of democracies have their own struggles with torture and forced confessions in some ways. But I think your larger point about confessions and why confessions, I think in the Indian context, I would say that there's a mix of various things, right? So one, I will say, and this is something that I talk about in the book as well, which is that there are constraints that are pointed to by the police as well as these forensic psychologists, right? There is a real issue of not having certain kinds of resources and certain kinds of prioritizing of professional investigation practices. So there's no doubt about how uneven some of the police resources across India is, right? So I don't want to sort of acknowledge that, although it's very clear in my mind that that's not the sole reason why they move towards confessions, right? But just for a second, to go back to that question of why is it that constraints are important, is that even in the framing of why they point towards truth machines, they'll say that crime scenes are not immediately ensured, right? So that they are not made available for other kinds of forensic evidence and you can see that in very, very, you know, sensational cases also, how carelessly sometimes the crime scene would be or something like that. So there would be then this emphasis on finding the live suspects. So there is that element, which I think those who are interested and in thinking about criminal investigations and policing have to look at. 
But the other part of it is because torture in the Indian context, although elsewhere as well, is often linked not just for interrogation, for confessions or information, it is often also linked to who gets tortured, right? So you do see questions of discrimination, questions of assertion of power based on the fact that it is often people from certain communities, whether it's from Dalits, right, which was called the formerly untouchable caste or lower caste, or again, these hierarchies are very, very real in everyday policing or the bias against Muslims and other minorities or against transgender or tribals. All these are also contexts in which basically torture gets used. And basically, you find that interrogation or questioning becomes a way through which other communities or these marginalized communities are also targeted. So we have a very strange mix of something which is very, very institutional, right? So the desire to quickly come up with results. And so there would be this argument that you need to quickly find somebody as a suspect and get some information and do something called a recovery, which is basically recovery as a result of information you've got. That's one kind of an internal logic. And then there is this logic where certain communities get targeted in the name of wanting to solve cases, even though they may be about something else. So I think it's important to both connect these stories, but also think of them separately. And until we do that, I think it's very difficult to understand why is it that the confessional paradigm dominates in many contexts. If I can shift gears just a little bit before we wrap up, as a scientific evidence person, The burning question in my mind from the very start is how the courts and the broader system could so readily accept these truth machines, even despite their potential reliability problems. Were the officials not aware of the scientific literature questioning their validity, or did the courts and the other officials not care because they just simply wanted to reduce the use of physical torture? What explains that aspect of the story? So formally, if you think about it, right, in terms of how the courts have dealt with the question of these truth machines, and if we just take the Supreme Court's version, then clearly you could say that formally today they cannot be used without consent and the evidence as a result of these techniques are not admissible except in one of the exceptions that I talked about. So one could say that the jurisprudence or the courts came through in terms of recognizing that these techniques are problematic. The issue, however, is that you only have evidence come in at a very later stage or the question of admissibility comes up only at a very later stage that at the realm of investigation, unless there's a very clear understanding of why is it that there's an acceptance of these truth machines or time and time again, why is it that the police and the courts turn to that? You actually will not recognize the extent of the problem. 
So that's why the book is also asking us to not just look at formal processes because it only comes into the formal process much later. But we have to look at the culture of investigation where these truth machines are still playing a role. And I think the state officials still value the role of the forensic psychologist, for instance, because in their mind, the forensic psychologist actually is in a site which is separate from the police station, supposedly away from the kind of physical torture or police torture that we saw, and therefore remains sort of a realm where they can still show some results, even as the reliability of these techniques is a question. So I think we have to distinguish between the formal processes to some extent and sort of the informal ways in which these truth machines also play a role in policing and in the popular imagination. Final question for you. What's next? Where does your research go from here? I am actually really interested, and this is what I've been involved in, which is to understand the relationship between state power and legal violence. And one of the things that came up in this book is thinking about the role of the lower judiciary, particularly the magistrates who really have the first constitutional safeguard against torture. So there's just a very bureaucratic process is that they have to be produced in front of the magistrate within 24 hours. And the magistrate has to ensure that torture has not been done against the suspect. And that is really the realm that I'm very interested in thinking about and thinking about what I'm calling the temporalities of justice in custodial violence and see whether that's another actor and site that can play a major role when we are thinking about torture and custodial violence. Well, Jenny, thanks for taking the time to discuss your eye-opening book and to help us see this problem of interrogation and torture and confessions and truth machines through a new lens. Great having you on the show. Thank you so much for engaging with my work. I really appreciate it. The thought that initially drew me to Ginny's eye-opening book is this. We normally think about our problems with forensic technologies as a function of history. Back when they were developed, we didn't really know better, or at least we weren't sophisticated enough to see the statistical and other scientific problems with those methods. And so the legal system was seduced. And then having been seduced, reform now is rather difficult, the status quo being hard to unseat. But that's not what happened in India. The reformers were not in the dark about the perils of these various truth technologies. And yet at the same time, the Indian justice system seems to have been seduced all the same. The question is why? Well, the answer, I think, is surely one about institutional politics and perhaps social epistemology, which is what makes the book such a fascinating read. Another prominent and perhaps more disturbing idea from Ginny's book, and we didn't really get a chance to explore this in the interview, 
is this idea of scaffolding, or what Ginny terms as scaffolding. One reason why truth machines became popular, despite questions about their reliability, is that it was never about reliability. That the entire effort was an attempt to hide state violence through technology expertise and bureaucratization. One of the most disconcerting stories in the book for me was how one suspect was placed in a hospital setting, then forced to consent to the narcoanalysis, and then drugged and tortured simultaneously to extract the confessions. The technology, which was already troubling in itself, simply merged with the former practices that it was supposed to replace and created arguably something even more horrific. I suppose this cautionary tale goes back to what Ginny mentioned at the end of her interview. Formal legal structures, which are imposed from on high, are important for sure, but almost never sufficient. The deeper problem is the underlying culture. And so in the evidence world, we need to remember that the rules of admissibility are almost never the end-all be-all. How we produce evidence is as much a part of the battle as whether we ultimately admit it in court. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.